You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Cage Baker is the author of the novels of the company, from In the Garden of Eden to The Sons of Heaven. She also wrote The Amble of the World in the House of the Stag. Her newest novel set in the world of the company is The Empress of Mars. Uh, Thank you for joining me, Cage. Oh, it's a pleasure. Cage, let's ratchet back. I want you to tell me, what was the first book that ever grabbed you as a reader when you were a kid? Oh, my gosh. Um, As a reader, as opposed to being read to, I would have to say it was probably The Wind in the Willows. By wow. Kenneth Graham. Tell me how that book, why, what about that book appealed to you that made you really get interested in the, the, the process of reading? Well, initially, um, the, Disney had adapted it mm-hmm. back in the, ni- the late 40s, and mm-hmm. um, he took the liberty of renaming the Toad character J. Thaddeus Toad. Mm-hmm. And um, I happen to have a little brother named Thaddeus, and so it was a joke in our family. You know, at, I think it came on the Wonderful World of Disney or whatever mm-hmm. on one I, occasion. I remember those. Right, right. <laughs> you know, Sunday night, and you, you. This is, you know, in the the days long before VHSs or DVDs or any of that. Yeah, and that family. was the only chance you you would get to see some of the Disney stuff mm-hmm. other than than in the theater. And so it was kind of a joke in our family, and then it occurred to me, at seven or eight or however old I was, you know, this is based on a real book. You know, I like the cartoon. I think I'll read the book. And the book is just such, uh, well, let's try it to say it's a magical experience, but it is. Not only Mm -hmm. is it, you know, it's animal fables, which are a very old form of literature, but also um, the, uh, particularly the chapter, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Mm -hmm. which is sort of, that's Spoke something other of, than the Pink Floyd song? Yes, yes, indeed. It, they, they drew on it, too. Um, it's a chapter where the animals are searching for one of their own who's become lost. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in most other respects within the book, the animals are little caricatures of English gentlemen of, of the, you know, the late Victorian era mm-hmm. or Edwardian era. But in this one particular chapter, they go looking for, for one of their own, the child of one of theirs that's been lost, and they encounter the great god Pan in the woodland. Mm-hmm. who was the guardian of all little animals of the field, and he's looking after the baby otter that's been lost. And there's this moment where Kenneth Graham brings out the terror and the majesty of of magic and divinity and just everything that, that you don't get from just your catechism, you know, a real a real experience that's... Mm-hmm. that's um, transcendent, and it, it just blew me away that somebody in a kid's book could do this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and the way he wrote about the natural world, the landscape, and the sort of gentle humor um, of his characters interacting. And I love Victorian England and Edwardian England, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I read more books set in that world than I did, you know, in contemporary America. Mm -hmm. And so it it definitely affected me a lot um, in my reading preferences and and I think in a lot of my outlook uh, growing up. Well, tell me about, I, I know that you were also enchanted by the illustrations of Maxfield Parrish. Yes, now that goes back, that goes back further. That's, <laughs> that goes to pre-literate days. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother loved his illustrations as a child, and she was of a generation to be getting them when they were, you know, fresh off the presses. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually, as a young girl, uh, he taught classes at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Mm-hmm. And she actually studied under him for a little while. Wow. She learned how, I know the secret <laughs> of the Maxfield Parrish blue. Really? She learned how to mix it. Um, her own, she was an artist. Her own work was not as much illustrative. And mm-hmm. so she didn't work in that kind of pigments. So she never had occasion to use it. But I know how it's done. Um, but anyway, she had all his books. And so... I inherited a lot of her books, oh, wow. and looking through the pictures as, mm-hmm. as children, you know, there's so much, some of them are frightening, mm-hmm. but more of them are just landscapes that you, you want to escape into. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was one of the reasons she came out to California for economic reasons, um, just before the, for the Second World War, but also 
coming out here on the train as a young woman. And one of the things that appealed to her about California was the fact that it looked like Maxfield Parish illustrations, all of these golden hills wow. with oak trees crowning them. Wow, that's so, very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, she decided to live here, and here was where she met my dad. So in a way, mm-hmm. you know, I, I uh, wouldn't have existed without the illustrations of Maxfield Parish. You know, it's really interesting what you said about the illustrations drawing you in to the place because that's akin to what the experience of reading is. You you enter the world and you start reading the words, and pretty soon you're no longer in sitting in a room reading the book. Mm-hmm. And it's it's more than just escaping where you are. Mm-hmm. It's learning about other places. Mm-hmm. Recreating, learning to recreate them in your mind. Yes, yes, kind of stretching your imagination, which is always a good thing. Now, when did you start as a writer? I'm guessing you were a young writer. Yes, yes, indeed I was. It was helped by the fact that my mother decided early on that I should be a writer. Um, she had noticed that I had a tendency um, for narrative, which is not to say I was a, I was a, a lying child, but um, I did tend to come home and tell her about my entire day at kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And, you know, including redacting every single story we'd been read. <laughs> and um, so she got me uh, a library card as soon as I was... Actually, I wasn't old enough to look over the librarian's desk. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see over the top of the desk when I was brought in. And so I uh, read very, very early mm-hmm. and uh, started writing, I guess, about nine. Mm-hmm. And it was a case of I couldn't find enough stuff that I liked, so I started writing it myself. What kind of stuff did you like at that time, and what kind of stuff did you start writing? Oh, fantasy. Mm-hmm. Fantasy. Um, sort of folk tales set in this imaginary world that I, I created. And there was, you know, bits of Victorian England. I was kind of imitating Kenneth Graham mm-hmm. and stuff. And then um, as time went on, particularly after we all discovered Tolkien in the 60s, mm-hmm. I aspired to write, you know, a huge fantasy epic in yeah. three volumes, in three. set in <laughs> set in a, a completely huge, totally realized world that I'd made up myself and made up the language for and did all the maps for, because everybody did that, mm-hmm. or at least every aspiring teenage writer of fantasy, I suppose, at that point. Mm-hmm. That actually was where the whole, st- the, the world that um, is in the Anvil of the World and the House, and of, the the House of the Stag are set, and mm-hmm. the, the various short stories that are set in that world. They're all based on stuff um, that I began writing um, in my early teens. Wow, so that was back in the mid-60s? Yes. Wow. Now, um, I, tell us about, you didn't um, originally go in, into writing full-time, so tell us about some of you know your background you know, outside of writing and, and maybe how that, the stuff that played into your writing later on. Well, I had one of those relationships with my mother where whatever she wanted me to do was exactly what I didn't want to do. And, (laughs) you know, there was a point where after having been told, you know, since about the age of four that, well, you're going to be a writer when you grow up, and we're going to encourage you and, you know, read books and all of that. And there was a point in my teens where, oh, no, 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 you don't understand me. That's what you want me to be. You want me to live your life. I'm not going to live your life. I'm going to live my own life. La, 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 la. Um, and so basically I did everything I could not to go into a literary career, although I was still writing on the sly because I, I liked doing it. Um, <laughs> but I would have died rather than let my mother know that. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I also loved and one of the things that influenced me very deeply was Shakespeare. Yes. The whole Elizabethan world. Um, my sisters and I were history geeklets or geekettes, I guess. Um, we had pictures of Henry VIII and the Tudors, and we knew all six wives, and we knew all about Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was one of our heroines, you know, Elizabeth I. At that point, the original Renaissance Fair had just gotten off to its start mm-hmm. in, uh, in North Hollywood, and then it moved a little further north to Agoura. And in those days, now nowadays, most Renaissance Fairs are... Um, kind of plastic mm-hmm. and not particularly authentic and they're sort of a medieval muddle of stuff but in those days the original one was started by a lady who was a teacher mm-hmm. and she started it as a, as a sort of an educational thing mm-hmm. and so they um, 
admittedly, there was a hippie loving element of it way back in the 60s, but um, there was also a, a very educational element, and they did, in fact, have uh, classes that they taught. Mm -hmm. And once I and my sisters discovered it, I mean, we were there. We were there totally. And I worked with them for the next, oh, 20 to 30 years on and off. I still do some of their events. They were originally called the Living History Center, and now they're, they're doing something else. But teaching Elizabethan English for the stage is a second language. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would put on, you know, Shakespeare out in the woods and various other Elizabethan era and Renaissance era uh, drama and stuff. It was sort of like a Fellini, living in a, inside a <laughs> Fellini film. <laughs> And it, and it was weekends because, uh -huh. you know, during the week you had to go back and, you know, I worked in a number of, of lower clerkly jobs mm -hmm. in various customer service positions and lived in a variety of little rat hole apartments in Hollywood. But basically, I mean, my real life was lived with the Living History Center and that was what I, I kind of did for my credit and I learned... Um, you know, I, I was an actress, I was a stage manager, I wrote a few little plays that we would put on. Um, at one point, we had a, a traveling stage on wheels that we had a little theater group that would push it around the streets. And they weren't paved streets either, so it was, it was an interesting experience, particularly in the mud. And, you know, we'd stop and open up the stage. Um, if you ever see the old Hunchback of Notre Dame, the one with Charles Lawton, mm -hmm. uh, it opens at the beginning of a carnival season. And there's a big, uh, there's a stage on wheels. There's some actors putting up a stage, and they've got an actor in the costume of death you know, a bone suit with a scythe. Mm -hmm. And that was the sort of thing we did. And we did it for years and years and years and years. And then the, the original fair, since it was run by artists and educators, um, didn't make enough money. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they went through a variety of bankruptcies and stuff, but, um, and reorganizations and whatnot. And, and now it's kind of hard to put on a Renaissance fair in that way because of... of um, there's not as much open land. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to be in, in acres of oak forest where you couldn't see the modern world. Mm. And it's harder to find places like that now. Sure. And within driving distance of a major city where you can still get <laughs> <Yeah>. customers <laughs> to come out. You know, we ran an educational program, and uh, that doesn't make money. But, you know, we, we would actually send people to schools to teach them mm -hmm. various um, Elizabethan crafts or about Elizabethan history. You know, people who would go in costume as persons, reenactors, mm -hmm. historical reenactors. I was part of that whole big show, and um, nowadays it's pretty much dwindled on. They do a Dickens event mm -hmm. at Christmas, and I go up and do that for six weeks mm -hmm. and play a, a British cook. And, in fact, I made a fool of myself <laughs> on one occasion. The Food Channel, uh, Channel was doing, the Food Network, mm -hmm. was doing um, a program on Christmas celebrations, and they did one they did a sequence filmed out at the Dickens event, which is in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were having a food contest at that point, and they wanted to film the food contest and who entered and what sort of Victorian dishes people were, were fixing. Well, customers didn't enter it. Mm. So we basically had to come up with our own entries, and it's like, and here's Mrs. Jellybee with her famous Christmas pudding and stuff. <laughs> and I didn't, I had just simply to make up, you know, some, some bodies on the table, as it were, some dishes on the table, I had made a what we'll politely call a spotted dog pudding. Mm -hmm. It's better known by another name. <laughs> and um, I had it. And now I play a cook. You know, I have a plain black costume. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have a dramatic elaborate hoop and not silks and satins and, and like a lot of the other ladies there. And they needed some time killed where they were adjusting the lights. And, you know, can someone step forward and kind of do a little routine so we can get things done? So I didn't think they were going to use any footage with me. So I stepped forward and did a little thing about, here's my, you know, this is a spotted dog. And I went through the whole, you know, here's how you make it. And, I, you know, in a broad Cockney accent. And ended up pouring custard over it and sticking a, a Union Jack in it. And this is, you know, our, our jolly tars at sea, you know, thrive on this sort of thing. Real Britannia salute. And to my horror, as my mother used to say, um, they used the footage, you know, they bypassed, you know, the beautiful ladies in their elaborate Victorian upper-class costumes 
And it's still shown every year, and I get people saying, hey, guess what? I saw you on TV. <laughs> and it's embarrassing. I'm sure it sound, sounds delicious, though. Well, the pudding is an acquired taste. Mm -hmm. If you like, you have to like Victorian boiled puddings, mm -hmm. which um, actually I do, um, but they are an acquired taste. Somewhere around this time, you decided to start writing seriously. Or you were always writing seriously, I, I take it. I, well, I was always writing for mm -hmm. my own entertainment, mm -hmm. but... When did you start sending stuff out to get to sell it? Um, I Actually, that was in the mid-'80s, mm -hmm. so fairly, but it took a while to sell it. Mm -hmm. I wrote a novel. It was my first novel. It was a science fiction novel, mm -hmm. and it wasn't terribly original. It was about a couple of post-Holocaust society, or actually societies collapsing. There's a plague going around. You know, the, the world is collapsing, and a couple of nuns at a convent are sent on a mission because they've got a document, you know, their, their, their mother superiors found a document which disproves this rival religion mm -hmm. and shows that it was all made up, you know, that all their, their, their holy book is taken from a science fiction novel, you know, published a hundred years earlier. Scientology. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, actually, I think it was based on a news article about um, the Mormons. Mm though mine was not based in any way on actual, you know, or mm -hmm. any, on any actual living religion. Mm -hmm. It was just the idea that there's these two huge old religions that hate each other's guts, and with the world going down in flames, all they can think to do is try and discredit each other. Mm -hmm. So these two nuns are sent out to deliver this document to this mother house in a city that has still some mass media to get the word out. And, of course, things go wrong, and they get lost in the landscape, and they have adventures, and stuff happens. And it wasn't the most original first novel, but it got enough of a good response from editors rejecting it, mm -hmm. you know, saying, this is bad, we can't publish it, but it's not that bad, and we'd like to see other stuff you did. Mm -hmm. So I had another idea, which came from just an image I had um, on a bus ride. Uh, one of the things we used to do was the actors would go from northern to southern California mm -hmm. uh, various weekends, and put on the show at different ends of the state and this necessitated 50 actors and their assorted luggage and drugs and stuff piling onto a bus and heading up and down <laughs> I-5 and you know back in those days there wasn't a lot on I-5 it was a lot of empty hills and I'm um, just staring out a window one evening I had this image of this woman walking across the landscape you know with another person and saying some, the two of them having a conversation like, well, should we go to San Francisco? Okay, but I want to be out of there by 1906. <laughs> you know, and I thought, okay, well, why are they saying that? Because they're time travelers. You know, and there was an, a sense that, you know, the woman is with a guy who's her mentor that she doesn't really like particularly. They've got a prickly relationship. Mm -hmm. And that kind of developed into Joseph and Mendoza. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, first book was bad. Let's give it a second try. You never know. Um, because it was beginning to dawn on me that it might be nice to have an uh, auxiliary source of income other than an actor's paycheck, you know, and a customer service, <laughs> you know, file clerk's money. So I wrote um, In the Garden of Eden, and it took me about 10 years of, you know, transom submissions mm -hmm. um, before I finally got an agent and um, got Lynn Prentice, who was then with the Virginia Kid Agency, and... Um, she got it sold within six months. Wow. So then, by that point, the Living History Center, that was about, you know, 10 years on, and the Living History Center was going down in flames. And I had had an actual full-time job with them that I'd finally gotten, where I was an actual educational program coordinator, and, and then the job went away, and it was sort of like, well, hmm, you know, I have my back to the wall. I'm 40 now. <laughs> Let's try this writing thing and see if we can make a go of it. Maybe there's some money to be made in that. And uh, that isn't exactly the case, you know, as most writers could tell you. But it sold, and then I got a three-book contract, you know, for more in the series. Mm -hmm. So it went from there. History was made. Or, and it literally because history was made up too. <laughs> yes. Generally, I think that's what what happens. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't write much alternate history. I've only done a couple of alternate history stories. It seemed to me it was a 
a better challenge to take real history and sort of work in between the, the lines, as it were. The first four novels of the world of the, the company mm-hmm. are um, kind of, uh, they're craft, they, they set things up to, to a certain extent. I, I want to ask you, how much of this, this is a really incredible, full-bodied history of humanity from year zero to year 24, uh, 55, is it? Uh, 2355. That's a a lot of history to cover. And and when we read these books, we really feel that the entire weight of the world behind them. How far along were you in crafting this whole shebang as you you began the series and, and as you went along? Well, the first book, I had intended there to be more of the story than just the first book. Mm-hmm. But when it takes you 10 years to sell something, you kind of put off writing the rest <laughs> of them. Yeah. Although I'd actually written uh, an early draft of Sky Coyote, which is the <clears throat> second book. And um, I originally, that was originally a novella. I kind of knew where the story was going from there. I kind of had it plotted out on various little scraps and bits of paper. Mm-hmm. And I drew up a timeline at one point that I had taped to the back of my uh, my bedroom door. But um, what happened when I actually, you know, sold the first book? Okay, you know, let's, let's go ahead and write the others. Um, what happened was that a lot of the characters took off in unexpected directions. Mm, and new characters came in. And so it, it expanded. Originally, it was only going to be three books. There's that whole Tolkien trilogy thing. Right, right. Coming back, coming back at you. You know, and it was just Mendoza's miserable love life, you know, which even I got bored with, or not bored with, but tedious, found tedious after a while. And let's just say Mendoza, as a long-term companion, was a little trying because <laughs> she was the worst part of my adolescent self and a lot of other adolescent girls that I had known. And it was a lot of grief therapy for me because someone I I loved had died mm-hmm. unexpectedly and stupidly. And her problem is that she's an immortal, but she's essentially stuck. Because of this thing that happened, she's essentially stuck as an emotional adolescent for like 3,000 years. And <laughs> you could know, be trying to those around her yes, and indeed. to her own self. Well, she, you know, she fi- disappears down a crack in the world and only two guys... Only two people out of the people she's known care enough about her to try and find out what happened. And one is is, is Joseph, mm-hmm. who feels guilty about her because he feels like a father figure. And the other is Louis, mm-hmm. you know, who is her, her, her true friend, you mm-hmm. know. But uh, I got to say, writing the final book, it was such a relief to have her finally jerk out of her long-term position and start developing emotionally and, and growing up, you know, becoming a, a person who's... Something other than a tragic teenager. Oh, it, one of the things that that I love about this series there's so there's so much to love. There's all the fabulous history that you cover so entertainingly. There's the great characters, um, but I, I'm just really in, entranced by this kind of uh, triple perception uh, that happens when we read these books because um, the characters from the future look upon the past with disgust and a certain kind of, you know, ooh. Mm-hmm. The, the people from the past look upon the people from the future as unpleasant aliens, and in many ways that's exactly what they are. We here in our own present kind of like see, have views of both of them. And I think that's the way you play with those perceptions is really fascinating. Well, they're just, they're based on observation. Some of it is a generational thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a family that was somewhat um, earthy. You know, both my parents had fairly earthy senses of humor. My mother was a, a lady. She was a Southern lady, but she had, she was a very practical down-to-earth woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not not above telling a blue joke in a terribly ladylike way and my father was an extremely earthy and crude guy in a very you know (laughs) lovable way he's a native american and Uh had a native american sense of humor and between the two of them you know plus i was the oldest surviving girl in a big family and i knew all the facts of life fairly early you know and and wasn't particularly upset or grossed out by 
pretty much anything I encountered growing up, but a lot of people that I encountered did, and particularly younger people nowadays, who were just like, oh, oh my God, oh, don't go there, don't, don't even, you know, and, and there are things that they don't like to call a spade a spade, you know, or like, oh, how gross, and, and some of it is mocking that attitude that, you know, honey, you know, I hate to tell you this, but people actually sometimes live in houses that were built before 1950. <laughs> you know, and, and there are places in the world where people don't have shopping malls and, in fact, don't even have indoor plumbing. <laughs> right. you know, and I've lived in some of them. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and it's that attitude that, that, oh, you just can't cope if things aren't a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, I note with some interest that one of the reasons they think that allergies and asthma are proliferating suddenly so violently is that children are growing up in such sanitized conditions that their antibodies don't encounter don't encounter stuff early and mm-hmm. so their antibodies kind of turn on themselves as uh, we've got to be doing something mm. and that's why uh, a lot of of allergies and asthma are developing and there's a cultural but, equivalent of that yeah yeah that too <laughs> cultural spiritual you name it mm-hmm. you know um you know, for example, I was raised um, moderately, you know, intensely Roman Catholic mm-hmm. before Vatican II, which kind of sterilized everything and took out all of the old, you know, medieval ritual and pageant. But I grew up with me- medieval ritual and pageant, and I liked it fine. <laughs> that wasn't the bad stuff, uh-huh. you know, about the church. I'm no longer a practicing Catholic, particularly nowadays, but. I have to say that culturally it was a good place to be mm-hmm. in terms of the the satisfaction, the psychic satisfaction of, of you're part of a tradition that goes back 2,000 years and this is stuff that your parents did and your grandparents did and so forth. You know, there was a real sense of connectedness there. There's a, a profound distaste for that, or there there was a profound distaste for that in a lot of people I encountered who... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry. You know, religious passion and 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 um, spiritual. You know, all these spiritual complications are a little bit psychologically unhealthy, don't you think? And mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm more Dionysian than Apollo, Apollonian any day myself. <laughs> the, one of the things that I that is really amazing about the, these company novels is your sense of storytelling. I mean, there's a huge story that begins in the very first book and ends in the last book. And there are, are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of stories within the books. And you're, you tell stories well at every level and every length. Thank you. Could you talk about your, what your sense of story is and your sense of pacing, especially in this huge canvas? Did you, is this something that you, how much forethought did you put into this and how much of it is just comes off the tip of your pen? Uh, sometimes it just rolls off the pen. It just, I sit there and I no longer use a pen, Uh, although I did for a number of years. In fact, um, I learned how to write with a quill pen for theatrical purposes. And when I was a teenager, I stubbornly wrote with a wooden pen with a steel nib with a bottle of ink because I just, it felt more Victorian. Boy, I had one of those too. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it wasn't quite as bad as the ballpoint pen with a plume on the end of it, but but uh, I was deliberate. I mean, retro was my middle name, and it still is. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, then I discovered, damn, with a keyboard, you don't have to cross out mistakes. You can just you can just type, you know, on a computer. And uh, boy, there was no stopping me then, because sometimes I sit down and it just goes in its own direction, and I'm astounded at what what pops out. Um, the characters who take off and develop and you know walk off on legs of their own. Lewis is based a little bit on, on a guy I knew, another mm-hmm. guy I knew who died. I have bad luck that way. But um, he developed very much his own personality and his own destiny, mm-hmm. you know, his own fate. Most of the time, when I'm sitting down to write, I like to have an idea of where I'm going. Mm-hmm. So I'll block it out first. And it may just be that I sit down with one of my sisters and brainstorm about, you know, okay. I need a story. I need a mystery. I've got, you know, the ladies of Nell Gwynn's, mm-hmm. which is a, a team of super spy prostitutes I'm writing about at the moment. <laughs> this uh, is for the, a subterranean press. Yes, is that yes. Done, that's not done yet. Uh, well, the first one is. Oh, okay. I'm I'm writing another one for him right oh, now. Oh, good. Because it did really well. It sold out. Oh, so beautiful too. I love that book. It's uh, they were very very nicely mounted. Thank you, J.K. Potter. Oh, absolutely. Who does wonderful illustrations, but mm-hmm. also. 
Subterranean Press puts out a beautiful quality product. Their, yeah. their books are wonderful to look at. In any case, you know, sitting down and saying, okay, I want to write a book about Victorian super spy prostitutes. So, where's it likely to take place? Okay, you have your situation, you have your ladies, now what happens? They solve a mystery. It's kind of like that scene in Shakespeare in Love where he and Marlowe were sitting in a bar and it's like, well, okay, Ethel the Pirate's daughter. What's it about? I have no idea. So they begin, okay, you've got a pirate. And they just start throwing ideas back and forth. And a lot of times that's how it is, is mm -hmm. that, you know, somebody throws out an idea and you think, okay, wait, wait, change it from a pirate to this, you know, <laughs> and go there. For example, with the ladies of Nell Gwynn's, I, I basically blocked out the whole plot before I sat down to write it. Um, because I find when you do that, if you don't do that first, what happens more often than not is that you're like someone trying to build a bridge from point A to point B, and you have no clear idea where point B is, mm -hmm. how much material you're going to need, mm -hmm. you know, what shape the bridge has to be. And a lot of people just sit down and wait for inspiration to strike them, and they start writing, and what happens is they, you know, they'll get three or 4,000 words, and they never get anything else because mm. they can't figure out where it goes from there. You know, it's a little six of one, half dozen of the other. Sometimes I, I usually plot everything out in advance, but within the framework, particularly if it's a longer work, mm -hmm. the story can go off in directions I hadn't anticipated. Mm. Um, when I did uh, in the steampunk novel, Not Less Than Gods, I blocked that out. And over the course of that story, the young men in training spend a lot of time in London uh, and then the story takes off of the continent, and I just knew they were going to go a few places, but I didn't exactly know where, and the story sort of guided itself. And I ended up learning far more about the Crimean War than I ever intended, <laughs> and a lot about the Ottoman Empire and St. Petersburg. And now you could put me down in Constantinople, excuse me, Istanbul, uh, you could put me down in St. Petersburg, either place, without a map, and I could tell you exactly where I was and how to get somewhere else, at least in 1848. <laughs> uh, well, you'll need some of that company technology to help you with that. That would be nice, yes. This brings up the, 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 the aspect of your novels that most of what you write is, in a sense, they're historical novels. Yes. They are. I think my agent would probably wince at that because apparently one of the the uh, genres that sells, that is fairly difficult to sell, is a historical novel, but in fact, yes, they are. <laughs> uh, Garden of Eden. One of the things about uh, in the Garden of Eden was that I kind of was satirizing bodice rippers. Mm -hmm. um, the whole Elizabethan set sort of Harlequin romance novel, you know, where Lady So-and-so and her bodice falls in love with the handsome whatever, but and, you know, there was a little bit of a desire to show, here's what would really happen, <laughs> you know, if you fell in love with a handsome heretic at this particular point in time. Um, and also it kind of, it was fun to give it a, 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 I won't say 20th century, but a cinema standard, which is sort of the, the immortals operating point. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of sensibility that has to contrast with the Elizabethan culture, sort of looking at it with the outsider's point of view. One of the aspects of your books I think that is really um, important and fun is that you have fun in your books. All your books are fun, in, in a, and it's not just humor, which you're, you excel at. But, for example, uh, you were talking about Not Less Than Clothes. I mean, just the whole steampunk thing is fun. I mean, when you get into uh, the, the even, you know, the, the medieval botany of the Elizabethan <laughs> period, it's fun. Could you talk about bringing that sense of fun to your books? Well... From slapstick humor, which is you manage to do in text. I can't... I, I, we have to read Sky Coyote to see why, but... A lot of Sky Coyote, um, particularly some of the theater sections, because mm -hmm. it's a point in the book that... Um, the Chumash have a, an entertainer's society mm -hmm. that puts on shows and comedies. And, uh, you know, they're, they're lightly fictionized, fictionalized Chumash, but I, I actually adhered pretty closely to a lot of stuff in their culture. And for the places where I didn't, I kind of made some educated guesses, and then I also just factored in human nature, which is the same anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, 
And a lot of that was based on years of knowing theater people. Mm -hmm. um, out at um, the old Renaissance Fair, we used to have something called night shows, which was where, you know, we all camped in this oak forest. Mm -hmm. You know, and during the day the show was on there, but at night, um, sometimes we'd take over the, the stages and we'd put on our own productions. Um, some of them were parodies of stuff. You know, some of them were just... J. Paul, the magician, would get up and do his act as an opening for um, the Wizard War Combat show, which would put on a much bawdier version of the show than they would do during the daytime for the public. Mm -hmm. And just, it was full of in-jokes, and it was a community we all knew each other, and they were just hilariously funny. And I tried to bring some of that into um, some of the theater in Sky Coyote, but also when you were around very, very talented people for years, mm -hmm. you know, and I knew some wonderful you know, small-time burlesque nouveau and vaudeville nouveau comedians. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Reduced Shakespeare Company. I don't oh. know if you've ever heard of them. Oh, they, yeah. they started out with us. In oh, fact, really? I was stage managing <laughs> the day Adam Long stepped in to replace... Um, they actually had a couple of ladies in the crew, and, and the lady who was in the half-hour Hamlet, who was playing Gertrude, had stepped off the stage and uh, fractured her ankle. And so they had to get a stand-in, and the only one was available was Adam Long, who was this sweet-faced kid that I'd noticed had a real comic talent. Mm -hmm. And he basically stepped in and took over the drag roles, and he was a scream. And I basically <laughs> saw that group coming together and forming, because they, before they even called mm -hmm. themselves a reduced Shakespeare company, they were doing half-hour versions of Hamlet, where it was all broad comedy. And watching, you know, if you watch good comedians and watch their timing for enough years, and mm -hmm. God knows I did, you know, you pick up some of the tricks and you learn how to describe it if you're not sitting there, mm -hmm. you know, seeing it. You, you, I learned a lot from the best. And we had people that were just experts in what they did because when you're trying to put on a pageant in front of an audience that's been drinking beer all morning... <laughs> <laughs> and they want to see the wenches. They're there to see the wenches. They don't care about your Shakespeare show. You know, and if you can get their attention and amuse them, you know, then you're doing something nearly superhuman. And these people did it all the time. A lady named Judy Corey used to get out there and put on the Lady Godiva pageant. And she would talk members of the audience into coming up. And you haven't seen persuasion until you've seen a little lady managing to talk a big drunk guy into putting on a Lady Godiva wig <laughs> and a little tiny paper mache body with, you know, a little naked lady and a little horse <laughs> around his waist and gallop across the stage pretending to be Lady Godiva. And Judy could do this like that. And they loved her for it. She could make people laugh. Boy, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a hoot. I learned a great deal, not only about human nature, but about comedy from mm -hmm. them. And I'm not myself, you know, particularly uh, good at stand-up comedy or delivery, but uh, by God, I know how it's done. And uh, so a lot of that got into the, uh, into the books, which isn't really the best thing for science fiction. A lot of science fiction fans prefer their, they don't like humor. Mm. They don't feel it has any place in a, in a serious book, but I can't help it. It just gets in there. I think your books have a, a potential for a really, really wide appeal, to my mind. It seems that that they're just at some point you'll we'll, we'll have a, a phenomena where we'll have the the Garden of Eden and Sky Coyote bubbling under in the uh, you know the top ten with but in place of Stephanie Myers. It would be nice. It <laughs> would be nice. It seems like it should happen. Now you've somewhat recently. Um, and from since the dawn of time, been working in the fantasy genre. Yes. And, and the, you created one huge world in in science fiction, mm -hmm. but also all in the back of your mind, you had this fantasy world that you'd also created, and this became the world of the House of the Anvil and or Anvil House of the, of the House of the Stag, Anvil of the World. Anvil of the World, and there will be a third book coming out which um, is probably going to appear under the title The Bird of the River, mm -hmm. which is also set in the same world, although it's about some different characters. And this is actually the series that I wanted to write. I did not care that much for science fiction growing up. It was mm -hmm. another one of those things that my mother adored mm. and sort of assumed that I was going to do and, and no, actually. 
but she she adored science fiction. We had all the books by all the classic science fiction writers except Pineland. She didn't care for, mm-hmm. um, but you know all the others. And it was around all the time. And Twilight. I mean, she was a Star Trek fan when I wouldn't look at it. Really? And she was always trying to get me, you know, come <laughs> in and watch this. This is great. So, of course, the last thing in the world I, was, I wanted to write was science fiction. And I didn't write science fiction. But oddly enough, when I sat down to write um, a book for publication, I don't know if it was suppressed filial piety or what, but I began to write science fiction. You know, getting that out of the way, you know, the whole company series has sort of been my, you know, plea to my mother's ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, my own preferred genre to work in was fantasy. And, you know, now I'm finally getting a chance to do that a bit. These novels have a really interesting world with these three kind of uh, races balanced about one another. Talk about creating that. You had done this before, but when you sat down to write The Amble of the World, did you go back and really start filling in the backstory? Like, uh, do you have like a Bible for these books? Well, I sort of have varying versions. There were a few little, the earliest version, um is very brief and it's written in loose leaf um, or was written in loose leaf, you know, blue binder paper type stuff and was in a terrible, terrible pseudo Tolkien-y, pseudo medieval-y, oldie-fashioned-y English, which was rank imitation of Tolkien because everybody was doing it then. But I was 14, what the Mm -hmm. heck. And then in later years, in my 20s, I tried redoing it in blank verse, you know, and, oh, that's sure to sell. <laughs> Poetry, wow. Yeah, you'll get rich doing that. Um, but I did a whole epic in, in blank verse, and then I did another version of one of the, the stories from it um, as an illuminated manuscript. I did the calligraphy. Remember, I was educated by nuns. I can do calligraphy. <laughs> And so I did a, an illuminated manuscript with little marginal illustrations and, and stuff. And um, Do you still have that? Yeah, I do. Wow. I, were there any other copies? Just one copy? It was just one copy because it's all by hand and ink and watercolor and stuff. Wow. Let me put that um, into the Smithsonian. <laughs> it's, it's in a box somewhere in my apartment. But Have you considered turning it into a graphic novel, handing it over to somebody and saying, here, just... Make this mass market this thing. Well, um, at the moment, my agent's negotiating with some um, with some guys that I will not name, but they're fairly well known um, about maybe uh, adapting the House of the Stag. Wow. Well, there's th- that's pretty much what that was before, wasn't it? They- well, the the particular thing that I illuminated was a was a chapter that hasn't been adapted for you know actual writing and, and pr- publishing yet mm-hmm. about one of um, Guard's sons. Mm-hmm. Um, the the stupid shapeshifter Erdwe, <laughs> and how he goes out and gets a girl pregnant, and they end up running off together and actually having a rather sweet love story. But it hasn't yet made its way into into print. Mm. What I, I basically wanted to do at one point was make some money trying to sell a short story, and I was going through all this back stuff. It was a, at a point where I'd sold, I I had almost sold Garden Viden. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, it turned out to be stuck in a publisher's office where the publisher died. I think it was Judy Lynn Del Rey. Mm. And it sat, like, in a box um, for a year in the publishers, and nobody looked at it. And I finally got it back with a big note of apology. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I thought, gee, they must really be interested if they're keeping it this long, innocent me. So I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe they'll buy this, and maybe I can go ahead with Sky Coyote and... And maybe I can sell some other stuff. So in an excess of enthusiasm, I was looking through my other material that I had. Oh, that was another place it turned up, was in that first science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. Because one of the plot points is that these two nuns are on this incredibly long journey. And one of them is an archivist and kind of naive, and all she really knows is stories. And so to pass the time, kind of taking that Canterbury Tales structure... She's telling stories to the other one about this from this old fantasy cycle that she's come across. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of incorporating chapters of Guard's story into that book. Interesting. Um, you like the Scheherazade uh, thing. You, you, yeah, you the, do that with, uh, with the, uh, I, I'm going to butcher how to say that name, the, 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 little, the little critters, the little guys who live under the earth. Um, in the uh, oh the uh, Homo umbertilis. Homo, homo umbertilis. Otherwise known as the little stupid guys. <laughs> well, they're 
I they love are, those guys. That's and, and there's just so much more to learn. That's one of the great things about the company world is there's just so much more. You, you drop these things, you go, oh, man, when is that book going to come out? The, the, the Homo umbertillus came from, you know, I don't believe in, I mean, obviously UFOs are there because people see flying objects that are unidentified. But mm-hmm. the whole mythology of the greys, mm-hmm. um, particularly the idea that they're from another planet, um, if you know the distance between us and other level places, it seems kind of ridiculous that they would come all this way mm-hmm. to do these stupid things <laughs> that they seem to do. So I was trying to come up with, well, okay, if they existed and they act like this, what does that say about them? You know, and that probably the large, you know, a large number of them are morons and the ones that aren't morons are crazy. So that was sort of my, and that they don't actually come from other planets. They're a degenerate race of humanity that can do technology, but nothing else. Mm. And so that was where they came from. But um, let's see, we were, we were talking about the fantasy thing that um, the uh, the different races. Yes. Of, yeah, you've got the three, the, the Yendri, the children of the sun. Yeah, that that is all very, very early, you know, my sense of, they go back to my earliest, you know, imaginings of things. And the idea is that, you know, there are the people who live in the stone cities and there's the people who live in the green forests. Mm-hmm. And some of that, I guess, goes back to the fact that my dad was a Native American. Mm-hmm. You know, perceptions of that. People who live in the forest as opposed to people who live in cities. And gradually, as I got older, you know, I could put some ecological concerns in there about well, you've got these people that are absolute counterparts to each other, you know, the direct opposites, and yet each of them has their own point. Mm-hmm. You know, neither one is totally good or totally bad um, or totally right. And uh, they, the way they look and the way they behave just is something that developed. And, and they developed a very distinct culture without my being aware of it. You know, oh, I, that's so interesting. The... the Children of the Sun have a particular architectural building style that, mm-hmm. you know, I could draw for you. And occasionally I'll see a, a house that's like, ah, now that looks like something of the Children of the Sun, you know. And, and it's a culture that I've built up so that it has its own reality, I guess. It's one of those, you know, everybody knows exactly what Tolkien's world looks like, uh-huh. particularly since the movie came out. Right. But, I mean, even before then, one of the things that was so great about Jackson's um, filming of The Lord of the Rings was that it looked right. Everybody instinctively knew what, what it, it should, should look, look like. like. Yes. And my own particular world is that firmly realized to me. Now, you have yet another series you're working on. Um, this is a, a series of stories around uh, pirates. Yes. Before pirates were really around, though. So tell us about that. Your how your historical research kind of left you up a tree. Well, or actually, at sea, or... pirates actually go back as long as there have been people with boats. Mm-hmm. But the golden age of piracy, mm-hmm. um, which basically ended with the death of Blackbeard around 1720, mm-hmm. was actually a fairly brief period. It was from about seven, about 16. 70, 80 to um, 1720. And I, uh, I wrote a novella. I mean, I have always loved pirates mm-hmm. from the time I was a little kid. Treasure Island was one of my favorite books. Um, there was a TV series in the 50s that Robert Newton did, The Further Adventures of Long John Silver. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I adored it. And I've, I've actually tracked down some old tapes. And, oh, boy, some of the production values are so crude. But it's still got that, you know, Bobby Newton overacting uh, that I just adored when I was a kid. And I still, you know, see the opening with the, the flag fluttering and the clouds on the horizon and the sea. And it, it gets, you know, makes me all misty-eyed. It makes my inner five-year-old want to, you know, mm-hmm. run, a, run away to sea. But in any case, um, I wanted to do something with pirates, a good old pulp magazine-style swashbuckling story for a long time. I was reading the actual story of the actual historical Captain Morgan, yes, the guy on the rum bottle, Mm. and when he sacked Panama. And you read of his adventures, and they really are the stuff of legend. Mm -hmm. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. 
And um, I thought, oh God, I've got to, I've got to write this. I've got to, to do a retelling of this. So I researched it incredibly thoroughly. I got three different accounts and matched them against each other. And I wrote a novella called The Maid on the Shore, uh, which appeared in a collection called Dark Mondays. That was our Nightshade book, right? Yeah, it was a Nightshade Press. It was the second book I did with Nightshade. Uh-huh. Basically telling of the, the sack of Panama uh, from the point of view of a spear carrier, essentially, a, a young man who goes along with Morgan's army. He caught my interest as a character. He, he's one of those people that grew and became much more than I meant him to. Mm-hmm. And I had one of those moments where I can see, you know, the story ends, but I can see exactly where his life goes after that and all the stuff he does, even, you know, to finally being an old man. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got I to do something <laughs> more with this. The problem is, is that Morgan's sack of Panama happened really quite early, like 1671-72. And that is before pirates wore cocked hats. It is before ships had wheels. They had tillers. It's before a lot of the good elements that, you know, occur in every single pirate story. So I kind of realized, you know, God, Blackbeard isn't even born yet when the story starts, so I can't write him in. (laughs) (coughs) But... um, John is going to live to an advanced age, so eventually, you know, I hope to write his whole career and where his life goes, which is in a few surprising directions. I love, I just love to hear about all these stories that, that are, are in your mind and, and working on, and you're, you know, still working on company stories. You've got this fantasy series going, you have the, the pirates going. Do you go from one to the other? Are you writing like on more than one thing at a, one time? Um, no, I tend to make notes on stuff and have it sort of, okay, when I finish this, I'm going to work on this next, and then this, and then this. Um, but I've only ever worked on one thing at a time, because I find that if I don't, um, I can get stuck and diffuse my energies too much. What I will do, though, is that I'll finish a first draft, and then set it aside, write something else, and then go back to it, mm-hmm. to the first draft, of the first piece and go over it because I find then I have enough um, uh, of a sense of, of distance from it to mm-hmm. see, oh, this really drags. Let's yank this out. And wait a minute, I said the same thing here and I didn't say it as well. Let's rip this out, mm-hmm. you know, because I say the same thing later here and it's, and it's said better. Um, when you first finish something, one of the wisest things that was ever said to me was by my old editor, Michael Candell. Great um, guy. Great guy. Wonderful man. <laughs> sweet, wonderful man. and um, Super talented. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And one of the, the wisest things that I was ever told, I was told by him, and that is when you finish something, mm-hmm. don't send it off immediately in an excess of enthusiasm. Sit it on a shelf for six months and then come back to it and read it over and see if you still want to send it in just like it is because you won't. And he, truer words are never spoken. Um, the other thing about writing that I never thought would be true um, was said by Robert Louis Stevenson, before whom I kneel, and that was that the most fun in writing is rewriting. And for any aspiring writer starting out there thinking, that is crap, you know, I could never rewrite. I could never, never, ever rewrite my work of genius. And you get to a point where you realize, oh, no, 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 no. The sweat and strain has all been done by the time you finish the first draft. When you go back to the rewriting, you don't have that pressure. And you can see, oh, yeah, I could change this around and and rip this bit out and use it in something else later. It's much less stress and strain, and you you realize, you develop an eye. You realize that not every word you put down there is solid gold. You know, you begin to see your own limitations and your own strengths, and you can work a lot better on a rewrite, I think particularly if you have sisters who are willing to read over what you uh, wrote and say, you know, this part is really bad. <laughs> you know, why is this ending goes on forever and you didn't need it to? By and large, it's best to focus on one thing at once. Give us a little look at, at your future. Uh, why don't you recap, because you've talked about some of the stuff that's coming out. Recap for us what we should look for and when. Okay, well, I've just got out a kid's book mm-hmm. called The Hotel Under the Sand, um, which is not a young adult. It is written for the 8 to 10 crowd, mm-hmm. so it's for smaller children. Um, I've got a steampunk novel 
not less than God's. The deluxe edition is coming out in December, and a, an affordable hardcover you know, for the main market will be out uh, later next year. Now, the deluxe edition will be illustrated by J.K. Potter. Yes, it will. Oh, God. Hi. Oh, and I've seen the illustrations, and <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that guy is so phenomenal. I've been following his work for 20 years. And what blew me away was, was he did an illustration for a, a company novella I wrote called Rude Mechanicals, mm -hmm. which is about... Um, it was a comedy about Joseph and Lewis in uh, Hollywood in the 1930s. And he just was inspired. He, how he knew exactly what Lewis looked like, I don't know, but by God, that's Lewis. <laughs> and so um, that's, uh, anyway, Jeff Potter has done um, a beautiful, beautiful edition with a number of illustrations, not just a fancy cover mm -hmm. for Not Less Than Gods. And actually, the tour hardcover has a pretty good cover also. I've wow. seen that. It's done by Paul Yule, who did the company um, covers for tours um, mm -hmm. stuff. And it's uh, it doesn't have a big face looming over like all <laughs> the company books do. It's actually got an illustration that is, is nicely steampunk. Mm -hmm. So um, that's coming out. Um, I've got a number of stories coming out in anthologies. I just turned in one for Mike Ashley, uh, is a bit notorious lately for having put out the mammoth book of mind-blowing science fiction, which did not have one person of color or woman contributing a story to it. Uh. And I'm sure it was a mistake. Um, I'm sure he thinks it was a mistake, too, now. <laughs> I but so. I just turned in a, an apocalypse, post-apocalypse story for him. He's doing the mammoth book of apocalyptic fiction, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, anyway, I just turned in one for him. I just did a story for Jonathan Strand about Mars, and it's set in the, the universe of the Empress of Mars. Mm -hmm. Which is a company novel, but... It's set in the company universe. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of company operatives in the novel, uh -huh. The Empress of Mars, but it isn't, you know, Not it's sort of its own storyline. Sure, sure. Um, so I just did that. That's called Atlee and the Long Walk. The Apocalypse story is called The Books. And I did, oh, I just did one for um, Bill Schaefer at Subterranean Press, which I believe is going to come out in Subterranean, his magazine. Mm -hmm. And that's a... Um, that's a gentleman's speculative society story also. Not Less Than Gods is about the gentleman's speculative society, mm -hmm. which is the Victorian equivalent of the company. Mm -hmm. And this is a story um, that kind of combines the gentleman's speculative society and the women of Nell Gwyn's. Oh, that um, sounds like fun. Going off in search, and it's called the Bohemian Astrobleem. <laughs> Look it up. Uh, and that's going to, I think, be coming out in Subterranean Magazine fairly soon. And uh, there's a bunch, I get hit up for anthologies all the time, mm -hmm. and I lose track of where everything is. Those are the ones I've just done. Um, I'm toying around with um, a story called The Other Boy, which kind of looks at the events of Peter Pan from Captain Hook's point of view. Mm -hmm. And it's... You're of Captain... Hook fan, aren't you? Oh yes, <laughs> Jason. Hook. But specifically, Jason Isaac's uh -huh. Captain Hook, which right, was right. the divine Captain <laughs> Hook. It's like who the heck would run off with Peter Pan when you could run off with Captain <laughs> Hook uh, if you looked like Jason Isaacs? But anyway, you know, and my agent said, you know, um, Peter Pan is kind of done. Everybody's done a Peter Pan story, and everybody's done alternate uh, points of it. Somebody just came out with one called something like I think the Child Thief. Mm -hmm. um, which has just come out. But is that Brom? I'm not sure. I think that might be Brom. I think I have that. I think I have that arc. It's got a cover with a, a little boy kind of. I, I, yes, I yes, that's the one. Yeah. And so, um, oh, well, I guess it's not the best time to write a story about, you know, looking at an alternate version of Peter Pan, but oh, well. So um, I've kind of got that on the back burner. I What I'd like to do is write a few more stories about Mars and put them in a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have this book um, set in the Anvil of the World universe mm -hmm. um, called The Bird of the River, probably. And we'll see that sometime next year? Sometime next year or early the year after. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about uh, not a young adult, but it has a young adult um, protagonist. Mm -hmm. It's There's a river and there's a girl and her journey and then there's a river god in it and you see an awful lot of the culture of the Children of the Sun mm -hmm. and their interaction with uh, the Yendri. Um, 
And there's not a lot of magic in it. It's more of a straightforward, you know, travel through life sort of novel. Mm -hmm. But I have that one coming out, and I'd like to write a pirate novel, you know, after that, which uh, hopefully I'll be able to do. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, The Further Adventures of John James, who's the, the, the spear carrier from the first story. I've been speaking with Cage Baker. She's the author of the novels of the company, from In the Garden of Eden to The Sons of Heaven. The Anvil of the World, The House of the Stag, and her newest novel set in the world of the company is The Empress of Mars. Thank you for joining me, Cage. Oh, it was a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>